Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I have been looking forward to this just to take a bit of a break. It has been a nightmare of a week for me. My my lovely wife, Ariana, uh, is going through some health issues. Uh, just absolutely beautiful woman. And I hate to see her go through this. I miss her. We have five cats. They miss her. Our little dog, Pebbles. Pebbles, I, I found him out in the middle of the woods on Mount Davis, Pennsylvania. Little tiny chihuahua, Minpin, who's missing an eye. Whenever I found him, his eye was, not to be graphic, but it was hanging out. It was bulged out, and unfortunately, we had to remove the eye. Uh, took him to the vet, got him fixed up, and now he is my permanent little shadow. I, I love him. He loves me. And we both love Ariana. So, I don't know if you listening are religious, if New Age, atheist, agnostic. That really doesn't matter to me. We're all, we're all humans. Most of us. So, if you could just send a prayer, a good vibe. Just think. Think of my lovely wife, hoping that she gets well soon so she can return. I would appreciate it. Now, our first story for the week, this isn't just about the paranormal here at Strange Pathways. This is also about true crime, missing persons, what have you. And this one, this was a crime that I had not heard of before. This comes to it to uh <clears throat> This comes to us via the Reddit this comes to us via the subreddit Unresolved Mysteries. This is the Pesagini family case. Now, this is going to take us all the way to Brazil, August 2013. A whole family is slaughtered in their home. There is no signs of a break-in, none whatsoever. There's an investigation. There's extensive media coverage. The official conclusion by the police was that the 13-year-old son, Marcelo Pesagini, killed his entire family, went to school, came back home, and finally killed himself. Many didn't buy this explanation. There's been a few attempts to reopen the case, none successful. Relatives of the deceased have raised the issue to the Organization of American States in 2018, they're, they're trying desperately to clear Marcelo's name. And I get that. I absolutely get that. It's, it's one thing to lose a family, but then to find out that it's believed that one of your family did it, especially whenever there's something in question. And the chance that somebody out there is getting away with your family's death, totally understandable. So let's go a little bit into the background. The, the Pesaginis, they were lower middle class family. They lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Marcelo was a quiet kid. He had some health issues. He enjoyed playing video games. Surprise, somebody didn't blame the video games. Here's the thing that I find interesting. Marcelo's parents, both police officers. His mother, Andrea, was 35. She was low ranking, but his father, Louis, who was 40, was a sergeant 
at the ROTA. For those that don't know, the ROTA, that's a battalion within the Sao Paulo State Military Police. Uh, they're pretty famous for not giving seven shits. They're, they're pretty brutal. They, uh, think of Judge Dredd. Think of Judge Dredd minus the scruples. That's kind of the ROTA. According to relatives, Louis and Andrea, they've been having, uh, <clears throat> they, according to relatives, Louis and Andrea had been having a lot of money problems. Uh, there was, you know, the issues with their son's health. Uh, there were rumors going around town that Andrea had been eh, kind of seeing somebody on the side. But there were no reports of domestic violence, no significant disturbances, and why would they? Think about how corrupt a lot of the police are in the United States. And now you have a sergeant who is in a military police that is just like, people go, oh yeah, they're pretty brutal. They're, they're not just brutal, they're brutal for Brazil. Really stop and think about that for a second. They are brutal for Brazil. So, no reports of domestic violence? I bet those could go away pretty quick. Marcelo, though, he was well-behaved. He didn't get into trouble. He didn't have any violent tendencies. All this goes down August 5th, 2013. That's a Monday. Marcelo goes to school as usual. There really nothing happened. Uh, the classes end around noon. Jealous. That's, whenever I went to school, it was like 8.30 a.m. until 3.25 p.m. I, believe me, those times are burned in my head. Now, one of Andrea's colleagues passed by to check on her Andrea had missed work without warning. That wasn't like her. Inside, the colleague found the Pesagini family slaughtered. He immediately calls for backup. Remember, Andrea is a police officer. So, her colleague, police officer. Everyone in the family had gunshot wounds to the head, with the exception of Andrea. She was shot in the back of the neck and found kneeling over her bed. According to the autopsy, the father, Louis, died 10 hours before the other victims. 10 hours before the other victims. Let me say that again. 10 hours before the other victims. Marcelo had a gun near his hand, which was later determined to be the weapon used in all the murders and belonging to one of his parents. Remember? Once again, we have to keep remembering, his family are police officers, his mom, his dad. The first responders kind of looked around, and they kind of said, man, this really looks like somebody's moved stuff around. This, this place looks like it's been tampered with. This looks like this has been staged. The police have one theory, and then there are 
about as many theories as there are mouths. The official theory posted by the police. At some point between the night of August 4th and the morning of August 5th, Marcelo kills his father, his grandmother, and great aunt as they're sleeping with gunshots to the head using one of the guns that his parents owned. His mom wakes up because of the noise. Marcelo kills her with a shot to the neck as she kneeled over the bed. Uh, some people are saying, oh, this, this looks like she was pleading for her life before getting killed. Marcelo then proceeds to clean off the blood from the walls and the ceilings of both homes, packs his school backpack with five rolls of toilet paper, a clean change of clothes, around 150 US dollars. That's they're using some sort of strange currency down there. 350 reas, 150 US dollars, and his grandma's credit card. Then he drives his mother's car to his school three miles away. Security camera footage does reveal the car being parked near the school around 1.15 a.m. Marcelo sleeps in the car as he waits for his classes to start. He attends them as if nothing's happened. He gets rid of his mom's car. He hitches a ride with a friend's parent. Maybe for he's afraid of being noticed of riding around in broad daylight. The legal age of driving in Brazil is 18. He arrives at home and proceeds to kill himself with a shot to the head. Now, here's, here's the part that I don't like. This is... Weird things scream at me whenever I read stuff. Like this. Here's the thing that screams to me. Did you like high school? I didn't like high school. And this is a kid. This is like a 15-year-old sick kid. Do you like school? I didn't. I got good grades. I wasn't extremely popular, as one can guess. I'm sitting here doing a podcast. That should tell you something. But, if my choice is kill myself or go to school and then kill myself, I think I'm just going to kill myself and get out of school. Maybe, you know what? I'm going to ditch classes. Why would you go to school that day? Why would you put yourself through the torture that is high school if you're planning on killing yourself? Now, a psychiatrist kind of postulated that Marcelo had suffered lack of oxygenation to the brain, which caused him an encapsulated delirium. That's the psychological evaluation talking, not me. Essentially, he, he lost his grip on reality, and the psychologist thought, well, he likes playing video games. He thought he was an Assassin's Creed character. And he murdered his family. Their proof, their proof of this is that Marcelo had changed his Facebook profile picture to that of a character from the Assassin's Creed. <laughs> think, think, of a, think of all the weird stuff you've had as your profile picture on Facebook. 
Uh, I'm keen on putting up 1950s men's magazine covers as mine. Some guy battling weasels in a tub of water with another weasel. Two loggers on top of logs in a river fighting each other. Some dude fighting coconut crabs with a stick. Transformers, goofy characters. At no point did I think I was any of these people. And you know what? Like I said, I'm surprised the media didn't start blaming video games. Guess what the media did? They started blaming video games. Ubisoft, the guys that make Assassin's Creed, they actually had to release a note saying, "Uh, there's no relation between playing games and violent behavior. You know, just because you play a video game doesn't mean you're going uh, going to murder people. Just because you play Monopoly doesn't mean you're going to buy property and get rich. Candyland doesn't mean you're going to get diabetes. I can't believe how stupid some people are. If anything, if anything, I'm going to say video games actually help relieve the stress. You're less likely to kill somebody if you play video games. That's just my thought. Now let's take a list of the inconsistencies. The Wikipedia article for this case, if you go to it, you're going to find it lists 14 inconsistencies. We're just going to hit some highlights. Number one is the time of death. Louis, the father, dies 10 hours earlier than the rest of his victims, excluding Marcelo. And that, he, it's about 18 hours before Marcelo. Could Marcelo really hold his whole family hostage for 10 hours after killing his father? And why? This is a sick 13-year-old kid. Right? A sick 13-year-old kid subdues two seasoned police officers, one of which belongs to Rota, right? Remember the brutal fuckers? Yeah. Seems kind of silly. Number two, the crime scene. It was obvious that the crime scene had been tampered with. And a neighbor actually reported that she saw two unknown men jumping the wall to get into Pasagini's home at around noon. According to the police, they were informed of the bodies about six. That's six hours after the supposed sighting. Somebody, two men, did not report the murders. This neighbor the neighbor who saw the two unknown men jumping the wall, they also said, hey, we've seen a vehicle around here. We've seen a car that's been circling the street for months. You know, the way you do whenever you case something. 200 cops were at the crime scene before forensics had a chance to investigate it, right? This is likely... Most of the cops were colleagues of the deceased couple. They wanted to see what happened for themselves. Let's talk about the car. Where the hell did Marcelo learn how to drive? Marcelo's 13 years old and sick. Put yourself back into your age, 13. And then ask yourself, 
where did Marcelo learn how to drive? Right? Marcelo's grandparents insisted that he didn't know how to drive. However, there is a witness that says that he did. Security camera footage shows that he activated the blinkers four times after parking the car. That's strange, but it could be uh, Marcelo's lacking experience with the car. But, but, he activated the blinkers four times. That could be an experience, or that could be a signal. Two cars with tinted out windows drove by immediately after he activated the blinkers. Remember, Marcelo's a sick kid. The blood. Could he have really managed to clean all the blood, including what's on the ceiling? He had health issues. Now, I have health issues myself. To get the blood, if there was blood on my ceiling, I don't think I could get it. Right now, I have a chandelier in the room that I'm recording in. And there's, let's see here. One, two, three. There's only three light bulbs working the chandelier. There's, I think, seven that are out. I don't want to get up there and change them. Of course, you know, I don't have the adrenaline of murdering my family. Number five, the psych eval. It was done by a third party and without interviewing any of Marcelo's relatives or acquaintances. That ignores normal procedure. And speaking of procedure, it was ignored dozens of times during the course of this investigation. Let's talk about his hand wounds. Marcelo's hand shows signs of defensive wounds. All that was just kind of brushed away. There are signs of blood sprinkling at a very there are signs of blood sprinkling at a very fast speed at his palm, which would be impossible if he was holding a gun during the murders. A lot of experts point out that his position, the way his body is, points to murder instead of suicide. So there are some theories. The main alternative theory is that one of his parents were involved in something dangerous. They, remember, they were cops. Maybe his, his, both of his parents were involved in something dangerous. They were both cops. The commanding officer of Andrea's battalion was removed from duty for, quote, health reasons. After mentioning, <clears throat> after mentioning in an interview that months earlier she had denounced some of her colleagues for inviting her to a gang of cops that blew up and stole ATMs. A lot of police officers who looked at the crime scene said this was likely, quote, cop beef, and that the murderer might have come back to the scene of the crime. He blended in with the hundreds of cops who passed, the home, passed, who passed through the home after the murders. This doesn't explain everything. Yeah, there's some 
there's some stuff. Why would Marcelo pack his bag as if he was leaving for a large amount of time? Uh, why would the murderers let him do it? Why would they let him go to school and then come back to murder him then? And if they did let him go to the school, why couldn't Marcelo just had, hey, could I get some help? A bunch of people killed my cop parents. Some of Marcelo's classmates said that he told them that he'd killed his parents. And months earlier, he mentioned his intention to do so. <sighs> Who knows? Who knows? The only explanation that I can see is that somehow there are other murderers and Marcelo helped them. Now, the Brazilian police, for all the fun that I've made of them, they usually go to some pretty great lengths to solve murders who get media attention. This investigation was so sloppy. A lot of evidence was left unverified. There is obviously some sort of cover-up by the police. You know what? I, I'd be curious to know what you think. If you're listening on YouTube, leave a comment down below. Let me know what you think happened. What's your theory? If you don't happen to be on our YouTube video, if you're listening to us through one of the many podcast platforms that are out there, you can come on over to the Strange Pathways YouTube page, leave a comment there. Feel free to email me at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. I look forward to your messages. We're going to abandon the crime-ridden streets of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And now we're going to head up north, someplace a little bit colder, southeastern Alaska. This next story comes to us from the Unexplained Photos subreddit. The user ablue223 has given pictures of what he calls a strange logbook entry in a National Park Service cabin in southeastern Alaska. Now, one of the first things I do, whenever I sense bullcrap, and I sense it all the time, but one of the things I do is I will actually go search other posts this, uh, that a Reddit user, I will go search other posts that a Reddit user has thrown down. If I don't see any post, that's a huge red flag. If here's a, here's a strange logbook entry, here's, here's a five pound leprechaun skeleton I found in my backyard, here's gold coins that they use in space, then my BS detector goes off. But as I look over the, the posts that ablue223 has put down, where really this is the only paranormal, unexplained post that I'm seeing him put down. His other posts talking about a K98 rifle. Uh, he's talking about Dogecoin. In fact, the bulk of his posts are about Dogecoin. Hey, ablue223, I own Dogecoin as well. So, you and me, buddy, we'll, we'll hit up, we'll hit up that Alaskan shed once we get all of our, uh, all of our, our Dogecoin cashed out. 
But back to the strange logbook. A lot of people are complaining that they can't read it because it's written in cursive, which scares me. Which scares me. That's a whole different thing. A lot of people can't read cursive anymore. A lot of people can't read an analog clock. And I get it. Some of these things may be going into the past, but analog clocks are still very much a thing. Learn to read an analog clock. Learn to read cursive. It will only benefit your life. You can't be fat, dumb, and stupid your entire life. Dumb and stupid are two different things, in my opinion. (laughs) Dumb, you're stuck with. Stupid, you can cure. So you can't be fat, dumb, and stupid your entire life. So drop and give me 20 and pick up a book. But I'm going to... uh, I'm going to read this for you. The logbook, which also has a bullet hole through it. That's badass. The logbook says... June 16th, June 17th, 2007. We had a most remarkable visit here. What we had planned as a guest retreat to this wild spot turned into a memorable view of our technological future. Just as we were getting coffee water going and putting on dry clothes, we heard some rustling sounds out by the woodshed. I looked out the window and saw a thin, older man picking small pieces of firewood out of the stack. I went out to see what he was up to, and that's when I noticed the breathtakingly modern-looking craft tied to the dock. It looked to be a cross between an ultralight airplane and a hot air balloon. While I stared at this thing, all shiny-sided and tight with light wires connecting the sections, the man approached me. He was very soft-spoken and polite. He apologized for intruding on our privacy, but asked if he would mind his taking a bit of fuel for his trip. Of course, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I invited him in for coffee. While having a cup of coffee, and later cheese blintzes and acorns with thimbleberry marmalade, he told me his story. He worked for the Air Force and later in the Pentagon as a procurement-slash-development specialist. While doing so, he became enamored of the potential for the use of ultralight materials for air and watercraft. He became so enthusiastic about these new technologies that eventually he ran afoul of the representatives of the huge military providers, Boeing and Lockheed as well as others. Apparently, this fellow had become an advocate for development techniques that would revolutionize aircraft design, making planes cheaper and more readily constructed, even by home builders and third world consumers. Each innovation would benefit the large military contractors who would love their monopolies. After a series of near accidents, and after he found himself shunned and ignored by the Pentagon and peers, he realized that the developments he so favored would not soon see the light of day. When he perceived that he was being followed, night and day, he knew it was time to move on. So, that's how he came to Alaska. For the last seven and a half years, he's wandered the Northern Hemisphere, traveling in this remarkable craft. He said he propels it forward by aligning the wings, much like you'd sail a sailboat, actually moving forward against the headwind. And to keep aloft, he brings a very small amount of fuel. 
Thus, he stopped here for some wood. He only took about ten pieces of split wood, about as much as he could carry. By carefully holding in the heated air from the combustion of the wood in what looked like some large nylon balloons, he was able to, and this word, I can't really make it out, mofinge? <laughs> mm, the light he produced. He said that the small amount of fuel would probably be enough to get him to Wyndham Bay or the mainland, halfway between Juneau and Petersburg, his next planned stopping point. He was so enthusiastic about his craft and his concepts, I asked him why he didn't patent them and sell them for millions. He said that virtually all the developments he'd come up with were achieved while he was working for the government. So they really weren't his to patent. The one time he stayed near a town long enough to set up correspondence with the U.S. Patent Office to get a patent on one of his recent developments, he narrowly escaped being arrested by a half-dozen men who arrived at his campsite hotel at night in armored vehicles. If he hadn't stepped away from his campfire to take a leak, they'd have had him for sure. As it turns out, he was outside of the arc of light cast by his campfire when the black-clad men crept into sight. Since then, he'd been on the move. As to making money on his ideas, he said that's not important to him. He's eager for his designs to spread throughout the world. As he let me make some sketches of his craft, I will put them neatly below. After a pleasant morning with this man, who politely refused to give us his name, he lifted off as quietly as he'd arrived and was gone. We won't see him soon. Now, the next page was supposed to have a sketch of the craft. It's not there. It's not there at all. This reminded me. Remember, this is 2007. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a wave of mystery aircraft being sighted in the United States. There's actually a photo. There's a picture of one of these mystery aircraft. Very blimp-like structures that behaved more like planes, less like blimps. This reminds me of a story. One of these blimps hovered over a farm. A rope comes down and a man is taking water to power his craft. He says he belongs to the Sonoro Aero Club and that his invention will soon be known worldwide. It wasn't. But you do see how I'm getting the parallels of this. So, is this a man on the run from his own government with cheap yet high-tech materials creating a craft? Or is this the trickster? Is this the thing that kind of manifests itself into odd circumstances? There does seem to be 
an entity or group of entities that just messes with us. It tugs on our heartstrings. It it absolutely destroys what we know to be reality. It takes us out of our comfort zone, shows us a world we've never known, and then throws us back into a now bland reality. It almost, it almost seems to be the paranormal equivalent of a child catching fireflies in a jar. They do it just for the fun of doing it. I didn't plan this. But let's talk about one of these trickster cases. One of my favorite trickster cases. The story that I'm about to tell you comes from the book Shadow World by Brad Steiger. If you haven't read any Brad Steiger, I strongly suggest you pick up any Brad Steiger. Brad Steiger, just an amazing author. Everything you would want an author to be whenever you're dealing with high strangeness. So we're going to talk about one Kent Grondahl. He was going to school in the Midwest. He was a graduate student. Uh, Kent says, quote, I am of Scandinavian descent and I attended a small college in Iowa that had a large number of Scandinavian American students on campus. One day, I was out driving in the country, trying my best to clear my brain and prepare for an important test in aerodynamics the next afternoon. I was worried big time about the results because, stupidly, I had been more or less erratic in my attendance in this class, and I couldn't afford low marks on this exam. I drove through this tiny village that presently supported a kind of general store, a gas station, a couple of other buildings of indeterminate use, and lots of apparently deserted business locations. However, on the outskirts of the village, there appeared to be some kind of celebration going on. I heard polka music and saw a small crowd of people playing games and lining up beside what appeared to be a generous smorgasbord table. Now Kent, Kent can't resist getting out of his car and going to this party. He's a college kid. I get it. He continues. Quote, But suddenly my way was blocked by this big bruiser who glared at me with ice cold eyes. He seemed to have hated me all of his life the moment he saw me. I thought he was going to punch me. But here's where it gets a little interesting. This this tall smiling man, he steps out between like the big hulking dude and Kent and he the tall man and the tall man says Svald relax go back and fill your plate again this guy then turns back to Kent Grondahl and introduces himself as Eric Hagen Eric asks hey what's your full name Kent offers up Kent Lars Grondahl Grondahl's Account continues as thus, quote, 
Hagen's face lit up and asked if I related to the Grand Dolls of Boscobel, Wisconsin. When I said that I was, he loudly called to everyone at the picnic that I was related to them and made a place for me. With his arm around my shoulder, he took me around to various people and introduced me to the Lunds, the Jodels, the Larsons, the Olsons, as well as the members of his own Hagen family. What I had so fortuitously stumbled into, Eric Hagen explained, was a gathering of the descendants of the early immigrants that had settled this little dying village that I had just found. I was amused by the fact that everyone spoke with such a thick Scandinavian brogue, as if they'd only recently arrived from the old country themselves. Now Kent, he ends up meeting this beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde woman who goes by the name Carrie Roganess. She's about his age. Now, here's the thing. I do not... I do not suggest you hit on women at family reunions. Kent, don't play that, though. Kent, don't play that. He is looking at Carrie going, I don't care. Mmm, cousin, you're looking fine. Now, he just goes head over heels for Carrie Rogness. And he finds out, oh, Carrie's a local resident. Kent continues. The only aspect of that afternoon that was unpleasant was the constant intrusion of Savald. He cut in several times when Carrie was trying to teach me the polka, and he just seemed to always be hanging around within earshot. I finally asked Carrie what the Incredible Hulk was to her, and she just giggled and said that Svald was kind of like her watchdog. A brother, a cousin, hopefully not a boyfriend. I wanted to know. Carrie just laughed and said not to pay any attention to Svald. It was like someone asking you not to pay any attention to a huge grizzly bear that kept coming up to smell your pockets for food. Kent wants to see Carrie again, and who can blame the little incest-laden creep? She had seemed warm and friendly, and... But then... As the night goes on, she kind of gives him the cold shoulder. He asked for her telephone number or her address. All she does is turn away and tells him, it's not going to be, it's not a good idea to try to get a relationship with me. Now, you can call that paranormal if you want. I say that's just good genetics. Now, Grandal knew that it was time for him to get back to his studies. He's, everybody's packing up everything. And then he realizes, hey, you know what? The only person that brought their car was me. So he goes, he goes up to Eric Hawking again and goes, where's your cars? He goes, oh, we all walk. <laughs> they, they, we left their vehicles in the village and we all walked out to the picnic grounds that's a ritual we observe. Kent continues, quote, I got back in my car and waved goodbye to Carrie, who returned my wave with an expression of sorrow, which I took to be a sign of encouragement. That she already missed me and wanted to see me again. Directly behind her, like a faithful towering mastiff, stood Svald, 
glaring at me like I were vermin in his eyes. Study was impossible. I spent half the night disturbing Jim, my roommate, as he tried to write a paper for English Lit, regaling him with my descriptions of the wondrous Carrie. My miserable performance on the econ test the next day was one of the deciding factors in changing my major to political science. I found many listings under the Rognes in the local telephone book, but none of them had a daughter named Carrie. Determined to find her, I drove back to the small village and inquired of all the present residents about Carrie Rognes. All of them agreed that Carrie Rognes was a good Scandinavian name, but none of them gave me the slightest satisfaction as to her whereabouts. They were either lying or Carrie herself had lied to me about her true name and residency. Persistent to the bitter end, on my next excursion to the locale, I drove down the long lanes of every farm within a radius of 15 or 20 miles, seeking somehow to find the beautiful Carrie. Now, several weeks later, Kent is a broken man. He's at an all-night diner, and he looks up at the mirror. There's a, there's a large counter mirror, and he looks up at it, and he looks in the booth, and he locks eyes in the mirror with Eric Hagen. Sitting with Svald. Oh, you were hoping it was Carrie, weren't you? No, Svald. You want the blonde, you get the Hulk instead. Grandal's kind of shaken by this. Quote, quote Kent Grandal. Eric Hagen no longer spoke in his thick Scandinavian brogue. In fact, I really couldn't identify the peculiar manner in which he now accented his words. I had no trouble understanding his message, however. He said that he and his friends had really liked me, though I questioned Svald's affection, but I should stop trying to find Carrie. As she had told me honestly, a relationship with her was out of the question. When I asked about his statement at the picnic that I was related to him, Eric smiled and said that it was true. We are related, but not in the way that you probably understand it, he tried to explain. We are related to you as companions, as friends. There are those among us, like Svald here, who have some resentment toward your kind because truly, we were here first. And sometimes we feel supplanted by you and your kind. But hear me now, young Grandal, because we feel a true affection for you. We are telling you to give up your search for Carrie. What you hope for can never be. The waitress yelled that my hamburger was ready. When I turned away from the counter, Eric and Svald were already out the door. I followed them into the street because I had so many questions I wanted answered. Now they were nowhere to be seen. Here's a little bit of an interesting postscript to this. Three years later, Kent Grandal is visiting a friend in New York City. And he's certain, he's absolutely certain, that he saw Carrie and Eric walking on the street in Times Square. Quote, like an idiot, I rolled down the window and shouted their names. I know they saw me and heard me, for they looked directly at me, then turned quickly away and stepped into the lobby of a movie theater. I cannot help but wonder <clears throat> I cannot help wondering how many Eric's 
carries and all of our other relatives walk among us, skillfully blending in with the crowd, carefully shielding their true identities and their true purpose from us. So what was Eric Carriensfald? Were they the trickster? Just a little bit of spiritual teasing. Let's see what what this does to this guy. Were they exactly what they said? Were they some sort of entity that was here before humans and now lives amongst us in secret? One can't help but draw parallels to the to the jinn, the beings of fire, fallen angels, those that walked before we walked. Is Eric being quite literal whenever he said they were here first? Is this some lost civilization like Atlantis or Mew? We may never know. We probably will never know. But I'd be very curious to hear your theories, your hypothesis. Please subscribe, hit like on this video. Leave a comment down below. I'd love to hear your theories about this. This is one, the story of Kent Grundahl is one of my favorite stories. Because nothing fits and everything fits at the same time. Were they fairies? Were they from an advanced civilization, long fallen? Ghosts? Mimics? Parasites? Let me know. If you'd like to get in touch with us, do so by emailing us at strangepathwaysmail.gmail.com. Take care of yourselves and each other. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.